This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. This morning, Pastor Chris is continuing the Lent message series, Rooted Idols, by exploring the many things that compete for the throne of our lives. Thanks again for spending part of your week here with us at Christian Chapel. Good morning. It's good to see you today on the second Sunday of Lent. If you are unfamiliar with Lent, it is the 40 days uh, preceding Easter that Christians around the world and, and for a large chunk of church history have set aside to kind of reflect on the sacrifice of Christ and really just prepare ourselves to celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday. So a lot of times during Lent, people uh, give something up as a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ, or they maybe pick up a new activity as a reminder of the new life that he offers to us. But all of those things, their, their value resides only uh, in their ability to direct our hearts towards Jesus. And so that's why we do it. That's why we participate in it together. Each year during Lent, we pick a, a particular topic to explore together to kind of prepare our hearts again for celebrating the resurrection on Easter. So this year we are looking at at um, how sometimes the gifts of God uh, receive undue attention and, and really can actually become objects of worship for us. And so in this series called Rooted Idols, we're just exploring uh, the unending temptation we face to worship creation instead of the creator. And so each week we're exploring some different uh, things along those lines. This morning we're going to talk about the idol of taking it easy. And uh, before first service, um, Peter Maroney, one of our ushers, he warned me. He said, now listen, I, which I always enjoy any time a conversation begins with, now listen. Uh, it was, but with Peter, it's fun. And his British accent, it just makes it all the more enjoyable. And I can't even replicate it. But he said, now listen, I've been retired for 12 years. Don't ruin it for me in one morning. Um, and uh, I said, so I, I talked to him afterwards. He said, no, we're good. I, I still can enjoy my life. So, uh, so no worries there. But again, just what we're talking about, pleasure, leisure, these are gifts from God to us. But if you remember, if you were here last week, that weight bench is up there. Not up there to encourage you to get swole or any of that kind of stuff. But if you want to, that's a good pursuit in life. But um, what that actually is reminding us, last week we talked about some of you like swole, uh, big muscles. That, that's what swole means. All right, so... Just, yeah, you ladies, when you're going to the gym, just start telling your husband, time to get swole, and then head out in your yoga pants and go to Target, because, well, I don't know. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. Let's get back. So that's up there as a reminder to us that anytime we try to pile the weight of our worship on anything but Jesus, it's going to crumble. Right? So in the same way that like if, if you're going to try to lift this weight or if you're going to try to lift more weight than that, you need a solid, sturdy bench underneath you. So this morning what we're going to look at is all these other things up here. They're objects of pleasure. They're objects of leisure. They're wonderful gifts from God to us. But if we try to pile the weight of our worship on them, they're going to crumble. In the same way that like you're going to have a tough time lifting that weight while you're standing on snow skis or riding a dirt bike or sitting in a recliner. Uh, so in life, you're going to have a tough time living the life God's called you to if you're piling your worship on anything but Jesus. And so today, again, like I said, it's uh, the idol of taking it easy, and specifically we're looking at pleasure and leisure. How many of you uh, remember, like you have an actual memory from 1983 when Cindy Lauper released her song, Girls Just Want to Have Fun? Anybody? Okay. You're kind of shameful in your admission of that. So let's just dig a little deeper. How many of you really loved that song when it came out? Be honest. 
Be honest. Okay, we must have a holier crowd. There were a lot of people, men included, in the first service who, who admitted to enjoying that song. But uh, she released that in 1983. It climbed to number two on the Billboard charts, and I think it really did it on the strength of the lyrics. I mean, they're just really meaningful. Uh, the song, you know, it went something like, girls just want to have fun. Oh, girls just want to have fun. They want to, they want to. Girls just want to have fun. And I mean, if that doesn't really kind of sum up our culture and that we were all like, yes, this is great music. Uh, but even if, you, if you're not a fan of that genre, if you weren't a Cyndi Lauper person, uh, you can still, I mean, every year in every genre of music, you can find songs that they're saying the same thing, right? The words are different. Like every, it seems like country, especially every summer, there's like the summer anthem song. And it's just the modern equivalent of that. It just includes like a pontoon and Budweiser. Like that's the only difference between Cyndi Lauper and, and what we listen to now. But we, we just, we have this, we as Americans, we love it. We are professionals at pleasure and leisure. Like we love to have fun. We love to enjoy life. It's in our own declaration of independence. They said it a little more elaborate. It might be the first time Cindy Lauper and our founding fathers have been used to make the same point, but they said it this way. They said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we love that last line, the pursuit of happiness. And most of us, if we're, if we're honest in how we define happiness in our life, we define it by the amount of pleasure and the amount of leisure that we have. We don't define happiness as the day we get to do our taxes, right? You don't define happiness by like, man, it was awesome. I spent all day running errands. Like that's not, happiness is when we do things that bring us joy. Happiness is when we do things that bring us rest. And that's kind of what all of this behind us represents this morning. Just all the different ways we look at that. My little girl, I have uh, three kids and my little girl this morning, she came in and she said, dad, why is all that junk on the stage? Which I think reflects she has her mom's heart of like everything has a place and it should be in it and that is not it. Uh, and her little brother corrected her very quickly. He said, Audrey, be quiet. That's a dirt bike and a dirt bike is never junk. A dirt bike is only awesomeness. And so he uh, is already identifying with that. Some of us, I mean, different things up here you identify with as sources of pleasure or leisure in your life. Maybe you're a dirt bike rider, you're a snow skier, you're a diver, you're a, you're a hunter, a golfer, whatever. You're, a, you're the gamer, you're the Xbox guy. Maybe you're, you know, you're the leisure person who just your dream day is kicked back in that recliner. Like you already, 2.30 this afternoon, you're gonna go home, you're gonna watch that Thunder Cavs game and it's, you're not gonna move. Like you're gonna you're going to melt into your recliner or your couch. Some of you uh, are more professional in your pursuits of leisure activities. Like you can't just sit in a couch. You have to sit by the beach or by the pool or you have a, you're on a boat or you have a fishing rod in your hand or, or any of these types of things. Now, what, what I want you to understand from the beginning is there is nothing wrong with any of that. Like that's all, it's all good if it's kept in its place. Right? It's, it's not a message. Sometimes I think Christians, we can do a bad job if we present a picture of our faith like, if it's fun, stop it. Jesus doesn't like that. But that's not it. You know, the idol of taking it easy, the idol of pleasure and leisure, it's not about, hey, quit doing everything you enjoy. It's about don't place your worship on gifts that God has given to you. 
And so what we're going to explore for a couple minutes this morning is what happens when we worship pleasure, what happens when we worship leisure, and then how Jesus comes to perfectly and finally meet these needs for us. So most of us, we worship pleasure because we're pursuing joy. Right? The things that make you the happiest are the things you probably try to do the most often. Now, sometimes that's not always possible. Like for me, the, the primary thing I think of, if you say, what is the most joyful moment of your life, is uh, when I go skiing in Colorado. Like I, I grew up in Kansas, so everything was flat, right? And, and never, eight hours from the mountains, but we never went for whatever reason. I came here as a youth pastor. I took the, them skiing my very first year as a youth pastor. And I remember, not the first day, because that was miserable, because I didn't know what I was doing, but the second day, the second day I remember thinking, where has this been all my life? Like, this is beautiful. God, can we move to Colorado? Can we, you know, in uh, and, and like exploring, is there a possibility for a Christian chapel really far west campus, uh, you know, and, and just there is to me, now I know different people different ways. Some of you, you feel this way at the beach or you feel this way at the ball field or uh, the pool, whatever. But for me, there is no pure joy in life than when you're standing at the top of a run on one of those bluebird Colorado days, right? It's, it's 35 degrees, it's sunny, it's a weekday, so it's not super crazy with all the people. Uh, but you look down a run, you're with your family and friends, and it's just wide open, the valley's before you. And that moment, like if I could bottle that or put it in a pill, I mean, it's, it's just, it's so great. And as you point your skis and head down that run, there's just a, for me, there's a freedom and just a pure, like, little kid-style joy, you know, just like I'm grinning like an idiot the whole way down because I just, everything is good. Even if everything's not good, in that moment, everything is good. Mind, body, spirit, everything's at peace, everything's joyful, everything is just wonderful. And, and I'm, I'm convinced that the ability to feel that way is a gift from God to us. Like, he made us to have joy in his world. He made us to enjoy our relationships, to enjoy activities like that. It's how he created us. It's how he wired us. It's why I think the only way you can really explain the beauty and the diversity of creation is that God intends for it to be a source of pleasure for us. The problem comes, though, when we begin to think those experiences are the only way we can experience joy. And so for me, you know, when it comes to skiing, like that's a wonderful thing. But if I'm completely dependent on that, uh, it's going to mean I have to make some big lifestyle changes. Like if I come to the point where I think the only way I can feel joy is if I'm skiing, well, I've got to move my family and I've got to quit my job and I've got to do all these other things to make sure that I can feel joy. And this is where the worship of pleasure gets dangerous for us because if we worship pleasure as our source of joy, eventually it leads us into a lifestyle of addiction. Lifestyles where we think the only way I can have that feeling is if I do that thing. And whatever that thing is, we then begin to revolve our life around it. We say everything has to circle and has to center around me being able to do this. And that can, that can play out in some ways that aren't terribly harmful. It can play out where we're just putting a little undue attention on something. It can be the, the place where, you know, our, our culture even has phrases for it, where we become the, the people who are living for the weekend, the people who just work for vacation, you know, the, the, the person who's only uh, really happy in a certain season of the year. Or it can take some really darker turns, and it can lead into some really life-controlling addictions where we become the, 
the, the gambling addict, the alcoholic, the video game addict, the sex addict, whatever it is, where we are literally rewiring our brains and teaching our hearts that the only way to know joy is to do whatever it is. And then we begin to chase that and we begin to pursue it. And any time we make our joy dependent on people or experiences, we are on very dangerous ground. See, here's the thing. When our joy depends on what we're doing, we'll do anything to experience joy. And that's not the place God intends for us to find it. And that's not the way God intends for us to live. Because when we worship pleasure, when it becomes an idol in our life, all of our life will bow before it. Our schedules will bow down before it. Our finances will bow down before it. We will force those who care about us to come and bow with us, whether that's our spouse or our kids or our parents or our friends, where we're basically telling them, if you want to be part of my life, you have to join me in this worship or at least be okay with my worship. And we all have that desire of, man, we just want to have fun. We just want to enjoy life. And that in itself is given to us by God. But like so many things, we twist it and we get off track and we get into some very dangerous ground when we begin to worship the things God has given us instead of him. And so some of us, we, we get to that point where we realize, okay, this doesn't satisfy. Or for others, maybe joy isn't the thing you seek most. Maybe it's rest. You know, for us, in a, we are, live in such a busy culture just kind of a go, 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 everything's scheduled, everything's happening all the time, that sometimes we can think, if I could just rest, my life would be better. And so we begin to pursue leisure, and we begin to worship it as a way to bring rest to our hearts. Most of us, we take the sit and stare approach to rest. We think, you know, if I'm really going to rest and recuperate and recover, I have to do nothing. But we're actually pretty terrible at doing nothing. So even when we do nothing, we do something. We camp out with our phone. You waste hours on social media, right? You binge watch Netflix. You're on just all sorts of things. You camp out on the couch. You pull the cover over your head and just stay there. It's, it, we're, we're not good at just sitting, so we occupy ourselves in the pursuit of nothingness. We think if we can just find these activities where we can kind of disengage our minds and we can rest our bodies, that then everything will be good. And they might bring relief for a moment, but we know we never find lasting rest in it. And again, taken to its extreme, this worship of leisure will lead us into a life of laziness, a life where we become exhausted by everything because we've held up this false God of like the the goal of my life is to get to the point where I can do nothing. Like some of us, I think at times, I know for me, there are days when I'm really busy or my kids are really crazy and I think I can't wait until I retire and do nothing and just sit in a dark room by myself all day long. But that's not how God's wired us. It's not how he's created us. He's not created us to just vegetate. He has created us to rest. He has created us to discover his rhythm of Sabbath living and and resting and recovering and worshiping. But he has not created us to turn rest or leisure into an idol that we bow before. Because when we do, it takes us to this place where we become lazy, unproductive people who get exhausted at the thought of doing anything beyond the bare minimum in life. And it takes us again to a dark place where we become worshipers of something that will never fulfill us. The problem with worshiping pleasure and leisure is that, again, we're placing the weight of our worship on things that will never sustain it. 
You know, for me, if all my joy in life is wrapped up in how often do I get to go skiing, then in 2016, I'm going to be miserable for 362 days. And in 2017, it's probably going to be 365 days because that's not an every year thing when you have little kids at home. But um, it's kind of sad. I mean, you should probably feel sorry for me a little bit. But, uh, you know, here's the thing. If your experience of lasting joy and lasting rest is dependent on what you're doing out here, you're never going to find it. No matter how amazing this stuff is, no matter how wonderful it is, you're never going to find it because you're trying to solve an internal need with external stuff. And this is what we're redirecting ourselves towards through all of Lent is that everything we need in life, Christ has provided for us. And so may we stop looking outside of it. I mean, all this stuff behind us, they're great gifts from God, but they make terrible gods. They cannot bear up under the weight of our worship, and we're not the first people to discover this. The book of Ecclesiastes is written, some people say by Solomon, others say by a wise teacher. Either way, it's written by a man who had immense power, who had immense wealth, who had immense wisdom, and and really lived in a way where he could do whatever he wanted whenever he wanted to do it. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, he describes his journey of seeking pleasure and leisure this way and, and the outcome as well. He says, I said to myself, come now, and I will test you with pleasure to find what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I think it's one of the the beautiful parts of being part of a church community is the opportunity we have to hear from those who've gone before us. Uh, Here locally in this current expression of I I love being a a multi-generational church because I can talk with people who've been down the road that I'm on right now. And I can share with those who are coming behind me who are traveling paths that I've already seen. But then we also have the opportunity together as a community each week to turn our attention back to the scriptures and be reminded we're not the first ones to walk this way. And there is so much wisdom in the scriptures for us to describe the the way of life that leads to a soul that is joyful, that is at peace, and that is at rest. And Ecclesiastes, when it comes to the idea of pleasure and leisure, is maybe the, the preeminent passage for us to look at. Because again, it, this is the guy who says, I have done it all. Everything that you are working for in your life right now, I had it. Everything that you think will satisfy your heart, I did it. Every dream that you have was fulfilled before me. And the end that he comes to, he says, look, I denied myself nothing. If my eyes saw it, I did it. If my heart wanted it, it got it. And at the end, what does he say? Everything was meaningless. 
a chasing after the wind. You know, in Oklahoma, I think that picture should be very meaningful to us of a chasing after the wind, right? Like you, if you're a parent of a small child, just this week when they're driving you nuts, tell them to go outside and don't come in until they catch the wind. And it, you know, it should buy you a couple hours at least. Uh, you know, but, but this idea, you under, we understand that picture. If we go outside today and we're chasing the wind, it's going to be fruitless and it's going to be exhausting. And that's exactly how he describes a life that is built on the pursuit of pleasure and leisure. He says, in the end, you're going to be exhausted and you're going to have nothing to show. I mean, you're going to have, stu- you're going to have stuff to show, but ultimately you're going to have nothing to show because it's not going to bring any lasting fulfillment. It's not going to bring any lasting meaning. Your heart is not going to be content. You will not know real joy or real rest as long as you're depending on stuff or people to give you those feelings. And it's so good for us to turn our attention back because it's pretty easy for us at times to think, well, if I could just achieve one more level, then I'd be satisfied. If I could just get one more thing, if I could just have one more experience, if I could just make this a little more regular part of my life, and what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is telling us is it's not going to work. No matter how far you go, no matter how great the vacation is, you got to come home. No matter how wonderful that experience is, one day you won't be able to do it anymore. Sometime, in some way, all of these things will be stripped away, and we're all left to say it's meaningless. And everybody comes to this point at one, at one way or another. Some of us at different times, some of us, we, we take longer in our pursuit before we arrive here, but eventually, this is where we all arrive. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about this idea of when you search for things in the world, and the world can't satisfy, maybe it's a clue that you've been made for another world. Maybe it's a clue that your heart was made for more than your immediate surroundings. Maybe it's a clue to look beyond yourself and your stuff to solve the problems in your heart. And that's the invitation that I think the scriptures provide for us. The the challenge that we face, though, is once we reach this point of, okay, none of this stuff is going to satisfy me, what do I do? I think there are really kind of two approaches that I want to talk about this morning. One is, um, I would call it like the, the sledgehammer approach to following Jesus. Now, uh, you know, some of us, I, I had a, I remember being in a service once and the, uh, the guy who was preaching, he brought out stuff like this and he was talking to us about um, just little idols and, and bad things in your life. And the, like the, the climax of his sermon was when he just started smashing everything. And as a 14-year-old boy, it remains the most awesome sermon I have ever seen in my life. It was like, I don't, I don't know that comedian, but you know the comedian with the giant thing and he smashed it? It was like that, um, except we felt bad too because we liked video games. And he was telling us you can't like video games anymore. But anyway, so there's this approach to following Jesus that says, hey, if the dirt bike keeps you from church... You, and everyone who loaned me their stuff is like, don't, don't, don't do it. Right, Dave? I mean, you just, sometimes you, no, but that's like, that's the solution. If the dirt bike keeps you from church, you smash it. If the computer keeps you, you sell it. If the, uh, you know, like there were these um, youth conferences when I was growing up and, and one of the things they would do is like, uh, come burn your secular music and they'd have a fire down at the front or come break your, and it was this idea that like, hey, we need to have the zeal of the Old Testament prophets. And they would talk about the stories in the Old Testament where the prophets would go out and they would see the altars and they would see the poles and they would see the idols and they would just start to smash everything. 
It was this scorched earth policy of following Jesus of like, we're not sure if that's okay or not, so just burn it and break it just in case. And there's a, I think there's a place for that. You know, it comes out, of, I think, out of the holiness tradition in the church that says, hey, we are called to be set apart. We are supposed to be different. Our lives should not look exactly like the world. Jesus has called us out of the world. He set us in a new life. And so there are some of these behaviors we cannot continue to engage in. And, and there's some truth in that. Right? There are things that have absolutely no place in the life of a believer. And there are things that you'll see, like I'm worshiping this, seeking joy, and it is just blatantly wrong and dark and sinful. And those things, they have no place and, and they very much should be eliminated. Problem though is a lot of times we stop there and we think, okay, I, I smashed it, I broke it. I'm good now. Like there's nothing left in my life that I enjoy. I must be a Christian, you know? I have absolutely no rest. I work for Jesus seven days a week, 24 hours a day. I must surely be a Christian now. And we've just smashed it all and we've broken it all, but we haven't actually dealt with our heart. We've dealt with the external stuff, but we haven't dealt with the internal stuff. And Jesus himself teaches us in the New Testament this idea of, hey, when evil is eliminated from your heart, that's good, but it's not enough. It must also be replaced. This book that uh, we're reading on Wednesday nights is God's at War by Kyle Eidelman. That's kind of the, the, the core thought of his book is the idea that you don't just need to remove the idols in your life. You need Jesus to replace them. And in one of those chapters, he's talking about this approach we take of kind of behavior modification to our sin. If we think, well, I do this sin, so I'm just going to clean out these behaviors and then I'll be fine again. There's this, this wonderful line in the book where he says, the heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. And again, he's pointing us back towards this idea of you can stop all that, you can break all that, you can burn all that, and it might be all well and good, but until you deal with the internal issue, you're going to keep having external problems. And that's where I think, again, that the teaching of the gospel is so much different. In John chapter 4, Jesus tells, uh, or, or John tells us the story of Jesus interacting with the woman at the well. If you're familiar with it, you know the story, it's very simple. If you're not, basically the context is Jesus and his disciples are traveling. It's the middle of the day, it's hot, they are hungry, and they are thirsty. They come to a well and outside of town, and Jesus tells his disciples, go into town and get us some bread, I'm going to wait here. And so they go in, they get bread, and while Jesus is sitting at the well, it says a Samaritan woman comes, and she's coming in the middle of the day, which means absolutely nothing to us, but to John's original audience, that would have been a clue to them of what type of woman this was. You see, in their culture, all the women would get up every morning, and they would go to the well together. And it's their time that they would talk, and they would hang out, and they would draw their water for their family and all their things that they needed to do that day, and they would take it back. So for this woman to be coming in the middle of the day, it tells us that for one reason or another, she's not comfortable being around all the other women from her town. And as you read the story, you figure out why, because she's been married multiple times. And so we don't know if she's an unfaithful wife or if she's some kind of black widow that just has terrible luck with husbands. But all we know is Jesus tells her, you've been married this many times and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And so she has this level of shame. She has this kind of stigma that she carries. And, and I don't think it's too far-fetched for us to assume that she has spent her whole life looking for joy and looking for rest, and she has not found it. And so she goes out to the well one day just to get some water. 
And as she walks up, Jesus says, hey, give me a drink. And she's been so hurt and, and so caught off guard so many times that she's defensive initially and says, basically, who are you to ask me to give you a drink? Like we, our culture says we can't even talk to each other. And Jesus begins to move past the surface issue and right into the heart of the matter and talks to her about, look, if you knew who it was who was asking you for a drink, you wouldn't just do that, but you would ask me for the living water. Then in verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water, referring to the well, will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, Jesus begins to turn her heart towards the real issue. The real issue is not all the things she's done out here. It's what's broken inside. And he begins to tell her, look, you don't need another drink from here. You don't need another husband. You don't need another whatever. What you need is for my living water to well up like a spring within you, and it will lead you to eternal life. See, this is the difference, I think, one of the big differences between Jesus and us, is we, we assume that when we've went through this process of kind of saying, okay, Lord, if there are things in my life that are not pleasing to you, reveal them to me. Or if we've chased levels of addiction and darkness, we think, okay, I know eventually I'm going to come to the end of my rope. And, and when we come to the end of our rope, we don't expect God to be loving and welcoming towards us. We expect him to be harsh and to be cold and to say, I told you not to do that. I told you what was going to happen. Now have fun cleaning up your mess. And when you get it together, come back to me. But Jesus doesn't do that. The woman at the well, he tells her before she has done anything, living water is available to you. Jesus invites us to himself. He says, look, when you have discovered you're serving other things, that other idols have taken root in your heart, the very first thing you should do is turn your heart over to me. And he gives us this really great picture that, that I hope is as helpful for you as it has been for me. He says, when I come to you, I will be like a spring of living water welling up within you, leading to eternal life. And I think it gives us such a great picture because a lot of times I think we think of our heart as like, well, I've got to get in there and I've got to get all the stones out. I've got to get all the thorns out. I've got to rip all the weeds out. I've got to make it the fertile soil that Jesus wants in which he can plant the gospel and it can bear fruit and grow. But what Jesus says to us, not just in this passage, but, but throughout the Gospels, is that he has always come to work from the inside out. He's not come to modify our behaviors. He's not come to make us better versions of ourselves. He has come to make dead people live. And the way he does that is not by giving us the individual power to make ourselves better. But he does it first by going into the deepest part of our heart and beginning to well up like a spring of living water. And as he wells up, it begins to remove, to expose, and to push out everything that's not pleasing to him. And that is such a tremendously freeing way for us to live. 
See, I know when it comes to pleasure and leisure, uh, some of us, we want a list of rules. You know, we want to say like, okay, how many, how many hours, just tell me how many hours of TV I can watch a week before it becomes an idol. Tell me how many rounds of golf I can play before it becomes an idol. Tell me what percentage of my vacation days I can use to go hunting before it becomes an idol. You know, we want the rules. We want to do this, do that. We want it clear and black and white. And Jesus says, just let me well up like a spring within you. And I'll come and I'll bring life and I'll bring joy and I'll bring rest. And we'll figure out all that stuff together. But a lot of us, we, we struggle with that. Because what that could mean is it could mean that I engage in some leisure activities that you don't. It might mean that some of you are able to do things that Jesus shows me that has no part in your life. And it's where sometimes the, the church, we can get sideways with each other because as we're both fully devoted to Jesus, we look at our brother or sister and we say, well, your pursuit of pleasure doesn't look like mine. So one of us has to be wrong. And I think it's you, right? Because it's not going to be me because I like doing this, uh, you know, but, but we just, we can get uncomfortable with it. But the gospel is a freeing experience because it says, as this wells up in me and as it wells up in you, it will well up in us together and we will be a community of people who are fully devoted to Christ, who have springs of living water flowing up out of us and out to the world around us. And we will work together to take this good news to everyone everywhere, to tell them of the joy and the rest that we found. And so it means we don't have to make the rules. Like I, I don't have a, a set number in mind of, hey, if you miss more than X number of Sundays, that's an idol. And I honestly, I don't think it's my job as a pastor to tell you that. I think it's my job to tell you, Jesus wants to come and he wants to well up like a spring within you. And as he does that, he'll change the desires of your heart and he'll reveal the things that have gripped you too tightly. And you'll be able to engage in those conversations with people around you and navigate that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is such, just, just so much more of a life-giving experience than just saying, if you miss more than once a month, it's an idol, get rid of it. Jesus is calling us into a life that is completely satisfied by his power and his presence. He's calling us into a way of living that is tremendously freeing to us. And it's not a license to sin. It's not an excuse to do whatever we want. It's not us kind of glorifying our addiction as our freedom in Christ. But it's instead saying, as I completely surrender to him, he completely satisfies from the inside out. And that's what he's looking for from us this morning. That's the whole point of kind of the, the observance of Lent that we join in together is an opportunity to stop and to sit and reflect and to say, Lord, is there anything in me that is incompatible with the spring of life that's flowing out of my heart? And if so, take it and remove it because I believe anytime you ask me to give something up, you offer something better. And so we come to him with open hands and open hearts just saying, Lord, have your way in us. We believe you made us for joy. We believe you made us for rest, but we know that will only be found in you. 
And so we'll willingly lay down every activity. We'll lay down everything we've built our families upon. And we will just say, Lord, let your spring of water flow through me, purify, cleanse, and bring life to every part of me. Lauren, if you guys want to come back, we're going to finish by singing uh, that new song they introduced to us, Come to the Altar. I love it. Uh, you know, depending on the tradition you grew up in, maybe you grew up in a church where that was the, like the culmination of every service. Come to the altar. That's where sins are forgiven. That's where life change happens. It's, it's a wonderful thing. A lot of times, though, we can, we can fear that because it feels like it's come to the altar and let Jesus hit you with a sledgehammer, right? Like the altar is a, a place of death. The altar is a place of coming to surrender and to lay down. But the thing I want you to think about this morning is, is yes, it can be that. But the altar is also a place of life. During Lent, we reflect on the sacrifice of Christ, but that has value because of his resurrection. It has value not just in laying down our old way, but in picking up his new way. And so the invitation to come to Jesus, the invitation to let springs of water well up within you, there may be some pain involved along the way, but ultimately it will bring life, it will bring resurrection, it will bring hope that's beyond anything you've experienced before. And so if you'll stand with me this morning, I want to pray with you and then they're going to lead us. God, we thank you that you are a loving father who gives good gifts to his children. We thank you, Lord, that you have created us to experience pleasure. You have created us to know joy. You have created us to appreciate rest. And Lord, we thank you that even when we get that wrong in so many ways, you still call us to yourself. You still draw us into a relationship with you. And so Lord, I pray that in the next moments, your spirit would speak very clearly to us. You see the areas where we are worshiping the gifts instead of you as a giver. And we ask that your spirit would come and speak to us. We ask that you would well up in our hearts like a spring of living water, pushing up and pushing out everything that contaminates and everything that separates us from you. Lord, help us to not settle for external, temporary solutions. But may we seek the lasting joy and the eternal rest that only come from your power and your presence living inside of us. Lord, we surrender to you and to your plan. We, we come to the altar each day asking that you would take away the things that do not honor you and you would fill us with your life May we live in the fullness of the life you've created us for. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing this as a declaration of our faith. As we do, if you'd like someone to pray with you about a specific need in your life, a specific need for joy or for rest or, or really for anything else, just head out those back doors and to your left. Pastor Greg and Pastor Rennie, a team of volunteers, are going to be waiting to pray with you. That as we surrender to Jesus, he will fill us with his light and with his life. The rest of us, may we sing this as a declaration of our hope and our faith. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.